Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Giovanni Singleton, uh, Lunch Poems Coordinator, and it is my great pleasure to welcome you here um, today um, for our amazing, amazing poet from uh, Sacramento, Indigo Moore. Um, unfortunately, Robert Haas um, is out of town and unable to be here, so it is um, a great honor for me this afternoon to introduce um, Indigo Moore. He is the poet of two um, collections, the first Taproot, and the second collection is through the Stonecutter's Window. They are available for sale, and he'd be more than happy to sign after the reading. Um, through the Stonecutter's Window is the inaugural winner of the Kavi Khan of Northwestern University Press Poetry Prize. Um, it is described as a sustained and impressive dialogue with visual arts, history, and the natural world. Um, in addition to the poet's dreams and nightmares. Always in motion, Moore's polyrhythmic lines are choreographed to make sense of all that is most elusive in meaning, music, violence, love, anger, and desire. Jane Hirschfield has described his work as sense embedded, peeled to perceptive freshness. He has a gift for the muscular and concentrating phrase. His poems do remind us of a cycle, experience, witness, endurance, triumph. We are challenged to stretch, to bend, to be brave just before the points of breaking. Moore gives us Monet, subtracted by everything he no longer is, and feet moored to autumn. It is sometimes darkness that provides an illumination as focused as the light of a single candle. Moore's is a cubist reflection of the blues. Charles Mingus on bass in Wednesday night prayer meeting. Say Billie Holiday's strange fruit or Robert Johnson's words. I went down to the crossroad, fell down on my knees. Went down to the crossroad, fell down on my knees. This is heavy lifting with just reward. Make way for revelation. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Indigo Moore. Thank you, Giovanni, for that wonderful introduction. And thank you, everyone, for coming. I'm going to be reading from both my collections today, first starting with Taproot. There came a time when I realized I'd been estranged from the South. I grew up in North Carolina for about 10 years, and I'd been estranged from my brother for about 18 years. This recounts the time when I received the phone call that he was dying of AIDS. Back through the storm door. I left the South broken, a busted wing and a crooked eye. Still, I wake mornings with the taste of honeysuckle on my tongue. The phone rings, voices weary with traveling, wires weighed down with crows in thick heat. I know it's the South, calling me to christen the born or bury the dead. 
Lord, I'm still addicted to its touch. He doesn't have long. If you're going to come, it better be soon. In bed, hours later, my mind still talon to the phone's bad news. Weed, codeine, scotch. I've ingested enough fog and brain ash to black out the moon, but the crucible of the past is relentless, grinding behind eyelids. Memory spark wild along the nerve's telegraph. The lens focuses backwards and the mind grays decades. I dream my past, a fragmented play, spliced together with rawhide ties and silk thread. It grows claws and jumps to stage, a beast my hands don't know how to tame. There is no balm for the past dull ache. When the blue jay rolls up his song, the whole damn world spins down on me. Falling back through the door, I'm broken again. My brother and I grew up with my grandfather on a farm, and there did come a time when he was getting ready to sell it. And there was this old stump in the back that we used to play on. And it's amazing as a child thinking of the things that make a difference. It, it takes many years of studying for you to be able to gather the words to express your thoughts. Uprooted. It took all our weight to drag the chain over the stump. My brother and I, heaving links heavy enough to strangle hope. Our hands lost in grandfather's big work gloves. Slick grass betrayed our bare feet. The tractor vibrated low, hummed, screeched, and began humming again. Smoke marbled gray the blue morning. Where we had once played King of the Hill on the stump's weathered face, we now played Judas with an iron-linked kiss. Grandfather spat red fox tobacco, feathered the clutch once to tighten the noose. The engine leaned, a runner into wind, as the chain notched deep into the wood, lover's embrace gone shockingly wrong. The stump shuddered, groaned, wrenched from the earth, and tilted skyward. I don't know what we expected. There were no ghosts, no magic, only naked roots torn from the soil. We stood with our hands at our sides, lost in the tremor, song of earth, all of us broken like a promise. Days passed until once more we circled the stump, each of us secretly hoping that whatever love had married this stump to earth could have time to slip away. We then laid axe to wood and released the rings. I spent time in Reading, Pennsylvania with a, with a stepfather and he and his friends all worked in a steel refinery for six days and they had one day off and I always remembered sitting at the top of the stairs and listening to them getting ready to go out. 
nomads. For six days, we purified metal, sleepwalking through sulfur clouds. A few pennies forged for every muscled clang of pig iron and rust. Friday's whistle, our Pavlovian call to bedlam, triggers us down to dogs. Come Saturday, we hang our checks on new shoes, silk ties, gold chains. Scrub iron ore from our fingers, coke dust from our faces, before slow fading from day to night. A bottle of gin passes between us. We stiff leg and hip drop a pimp down the boulevard. Tug our hats down until our faces are curved horizons with brown felt suns rising askew. Walking the bricks, we crave music worth killing for. Manna soaked in bourbon, grilled over hot Mississippi coals. The easy lion jazz joint exhales an intoxicating vibration of wood stomp and tremor slide. Bass so cold it shatters hot breath. The sax man's vibrato wrenches moans from our bodies, sways us into fevered cattails wrapped in silk and sweat. Spit shined leather begins to fly. Two more juke joints before sunrise, a plate of ribs and a whiskey sour. Sunday morning is a hangover, hard as an eye being stove into our heads. All too soon, the factory whistle. In Taproot, there's an entire section dedicated to, to music, so I'm going to do a couple more poems on music. The next one is the title poem for the manuscript Taproot. And I was, it came up at the time that I was doing a study of the blues and I was reading, on, reading up on Muddy Waters and I found out an interesting fact that he grew up on the spot in the shack on the Mississippi Plains where the Mississippi River used to be before they dammed it up. Taproot. Concrete and steel drew the Mississippi back like a fist. Scythe blades swung through dry harvests. Plows turned soil hard enough to raise the blues. Muddy water sprang whole, dry heaved from the knotted center of a plankwood shack. He shook himself loose of blood, dirt, moonshine, the ass dark end of a mule, and was gone. Since, twisters have spun the shack round, bent its insides out, till it vomited its secrets on boot dust roads. Now tourists use splintered slivers of history as toothpicks. A little ways down the road, you can squander a week's pay, sleep in an old slave shack, spend a day picking cotton, smile for pictures. The Mississippi used to cover these parts until they dammed it up, held its tongue like words you choke back in church to keep your insides from escaping. Staring across dusty fields, you can ache the need for river, almost drown in the longing for waters that won't come here no more.
one more musician from my past. Robert Johnson, as uh, Giovanni was alluding to in her wonderful introduction, is a blues legend, a great musician, and he's considered the father of modern-day blues. Uh, one of his songs, of course, sings of the crossroads where he supposedly sold his soul to learn how to play. My son, who's a, music, who's a music, musician uh, and a guitarist, would point out the fact that he sort of disappeared from the scene for seven years. It may have had something to do with how he developed the style that he was playing in. But one of the lesser-known facts about him is that uh, he was cheap, extremely cheap. And, <laughs> and one of the ways that he decided that he was going to... Uh, get the money to travel to Chitlin Circuit was to make sure that he didn't have to pay for hotels. And he did this by seducing women. Usually married women and uh, homely women. This is his words, not mine, and the historians. Because in his mind, uh, a homely woman whose husband would not kill him if they ever found out. Interestingly enough, uh, the, the one time that he uh, deviated from this and did seduce a beautiful woman, he was poisoned on stage that night. So, But I always wondered what it must have been like for him to wake up in another man's bed. So, another man's bed. My dream is always I wake to a ruptured silence. An ice pick cracking my dream slumber. Impulse says, get your shoes. Keyhole to suck daylight from the room. Get your shoes, boy. My left hand sweeps the floor beside the bed. Is this how death catches me? One hand lost in dust. Where the hell are my shoes? There's a dim streetlight glow. Pushing through the window, gray in the room. My eyes become focused rods, divining shape from shadow. Someone has polished my wingtip shoes, granted them flight, nested them on the dresser. The chair in the corner now wears a hat, grinds on the cigar. It's single. Smoldering eye finds mine. Smoke climbing the air like ivy on an invisible trellis. A gentle click. And a tiny hole floats above the chair's arm. Deep. Hungry. Trying to drag the room into its mouth. Six chambered screams curled like fetuses in lead wombs. A silk sigh, rustling of sheets as she shifts beside me. I lie unbreathing, an eternity away from motion, wondering which way is going to roll me into a grave. Okay, I lied. One more music, one more music poem. <laughs> Last Call Improv. It's uh, set to the backdrop of a Cecil Taylor. Cecil Taylor's a wonderful jazz musician, jazz pianist, and this is set to the backdrop of a Cecil Taylor concert. Last Call Improv. My apology melts 
into vodka and swirling ice. Her fingers lost trace the links on her necklace. On stage, Cecil Taylor cuts heads with his quartet. A tunnel waves plug the silences in our last dinner together. Two cliff divers on a dizzying drop from grace. A rapid descent key change closes her eyes. Cecil's fingers dig into a flat B, drag us into the rhythm. My breath grazes her ear. Baby, do you remember when Cecil played that set that smokes in the city? She leans away into stage like glare. That wasn't him. Cecil's fingers duel with ivory. Keys obey. Heart pulp and blood fruit stain the Steinway's checkered grin. Her hand slips away as Adagio moves to Allegro. Bass player growls his wide-legged stance. On the table, my returned key is a whale beached beyond the sweat of her glass. The rhythm leans us into Calypso. Cecil stomps fire wood to wood, kicks out the back wall, blacks out the sun. Twenty years ago, she wore black silk. I kissed her in a field before a rise of quail against burnt red clouds. Cecil curled smooth as incense from our radio as we teased a xylophone of each other's spine. The drummer hits a tripwire, drags me away from shrapnel memories. We snap our fingers to the deep sweetness trapped in our skin, but there are still no words we share. A tear rolls down her cheek. She wipes it away before I can. Two more poems from Taproot, and I'll move on to Through the Stonecutter's Window. Pull. I am told it was moonlight that ripened your failing heart until it finally cracked, sent the clock hands spinning off your flesh. I was a coward, still 3,000 miles away, convincing myself that if I came at all, I could never catch the dying hour. Forgive me, brother. For decades, your name has stretched my tongue to breaking, but love and pain often anguish logic. Long ago, on a night like this, I watched Uncle rocket a coyote skyward with a fistful of buckshot. It slammed to the ground, twisted, skidding across the grass. Somehow, it didn't know that it was dead. Front legs pawed the air as if leveled by nothing more than errant moonlight. Chicken feathers lined its muzzle. It mewled, eyes tunneling through me to the underbrush where its mate stood, now crosshair down Uncle's barrel and already dead by every book and clock. The mate stood mesmerized, not knowing that in this world, every fool carries a twin heart. Bang! I shouted. And the underbrush went wild with the mate's running. 
Still, if animals have souls, two die that night. Uncle cursed me under the killing sky. Why, boy? You know she'll hit the coop later. Don't you know that? This is my understanding of the fear and silences of these wounded nights. The moon snares in the sweet spot of the throat, and everything and everyone that lives on is trapped in love. I've been talking to just about everyone who will listen about the trials and tribulations I'm having trying to get my stage play on stage. And, <laughs> and if uh, any of the actors who have flaked today would be watching this later, yes, I've been talking about y'all. Um, <laughs> there is a theater term in the, called apotheosis, which basically means uh, it's uh, similar to deus ex machinus, but in this case, uh, at the end of the play, when the, when the playwright has, in my opinion, no idea how to end the play, the heavens open up, there's clarion horns, lights, and everyone ascends to heaven, I will assure you that nothing like that has ever happened in my life, but this is as close to an approximation as I'll ever get. Apotheosis. There is an extra star in Orion's belt. I arc my mason jar up through the fading light and snatch the firefly in mid-pulse. The heat lightning is a distant sweetness, sugar pink throbs on nimbus clouds draining from the night's basin. A screech owl's cry hugs the pine-peaked horizon. Behind me is an aluminum whoosh, a swing, a miss, a curse. In firefly baseball, the elusive lime green flickerings mock us all. Blind in the grain, we are forever doomed to swing where they were. We swear in corkscrew to the ground. The tall, uncut grass plays slivered kite to the evening breeze. Silhouetted, Mama laughs at every exaggerated lunge, twist, and fall. Her fingers are Promethean tongs that trap each cigarette's volcanic ember. But tonight, there is more flame than heart and hand can hold. A twelve firefly lantern pressed to my cheek. Does my face glow, Mama? Do I shine? Tomorrow noon, the rusted beak of the weather vane will swing north. Mama, summer, the fireflies, all gone. Through the stonecutter's window, uh, taproot was a major undertaking. I have a term that I use entitled uh, gateway poems and books, and I felt that was mine. It's those poems or that book that you have to write before you can write anything else. So by the time I got to Through the Stonecutter's Window, I had so much that I was ready to write about and so many different ways that I wanted to do it that I realized after I'd been submitting the manuscript that I woke up one morning and I was like, oh my God, is anybody going to even understand what I was doing? And <laughs> I was very fortunate that Northwestern University Press and Cave Conum did. I... 
am an opinionated person and sometimes too much but I had a way that I wanted to do things and uh, many times I was purposely writing things that I knew would not survive workshop because I'm not always the biggest fan of how I can bring things down. But one of the things I do love to do is uh, ekphrastic work, and that's work that's written about particular pieces of art. I was invited to uh, do this poem about a Monet piece, and actually I was invited down, told it was a Monet piece, but when I got down there was actually a picture of Monet himself, (laughs) which was very much different, and then not even in his... Uh, in his younger years where he was very vibrant and large and was, when he was older and somewhat decrepit and in a rocking chair but I took the challenge veiled vision anchored as his tired bones insisted to the chair sunken into a cashmere coat with thick raised collar you had no choice but to swirl his weight onto the wicker armrest You give us Monet, subtracted by everything he no longer is. Cataracts stacking behind shades, shrunken skull plastered beneath the brim of a gaudy sun hat. No wonder he succumbed to this pose. Camille, Alice, and Jean are dead, fading as his days and his eyesight. Gently he rocks, the cottage before him, the bridge after, off the focus of the canvas. I can almost see you, pyrrhically calling brilliant stroke and heroic light to take arms against the dying of Claude's seasons, yet not even your signature, resembling a Roman numeral nine, can resurrect feline litheness into his body. Of the futility he must sense in you, the bemused tilt of his head says all we need to know. Beneath the light-soaked beard, our lips pressed to keep the secret you are desperate to protect us from. A day will come for each of us when we are nothing more than still life in another's eyes. When I was moving to California from North Carolina, one of the things I was looking forward to to seeing was hummingbirds because I had this idyllic vision of them, as most people do, as you can tell by the paintings and the mini ceramics and everything else out there about them. And I was so excited to get a hummingbird feeder in my backyard, and so I did. But all this wonderful sharing that they do is great when the food is there, but when the food is scarce, they turn into some vicious little baskets. (laughs) Hummingbird's clothing. I am all wing and hollow bone, strung together with frayed nerves. No, I am not darting aimlessly. My job, thankless, is to reconnect your backyard's invisible braille while tilting, drunk on scarlet nectar. Lean close to hear my buzzing revelation. I am an anger god, praying for a brawl, a brother to fly too close and reveal me king of the low-hung sky. Each wing beat jackhammers the day into submission as the sweet breath detonates on my tongue. There's a restaurant 
in, uh, in, in uh, Sacramento, where I'm from, that I love to go to. And I kept telling my friend, who's from Syria, about this wonderful Turkish restaurant downtown that I kept inviting her to come see and inviting her to come see. And she finally came from uh, Texas, where she lives. And she looked, took one look around as she walked into the place and said, this place isn't Turkish, it's Moroccan. <laughs> By that time, the poem had already been written and published. It's Turkish. Glass. I vowed never again to cross that street. But the snake charmer laid his flute along my spine. Sodium light painted my shadow crooked across the restaurant's plate glass. My breath quickening against the pain. Inside... Mint teas, incense, dark spices tinted the air. A belly dancer timed finger cymbals and a coin sash to a baglama's dulcet strumming. Handwoven tapestries thickened the walls, tugging at connecting studs. Couches crouched low and in, low and sensuous. Every divan and ottoman adorned with scented pillows and entwined legs. She and I were only here once, I reminded myself. Still... The music pulsed the glass beneath my fingers as hookah pipes rose and fell like empires, like longing. My son, who uh, accompanied me to Chicago for the release of this book, and of course, you know, being my son, he had never really listened to my poetry much before. He uh, realized that many of the poems that I was reading either had something to do with something I was mistaken about or something that had no clue what was going on. <laughs> this is uh, probably a little of both. I had a text plan for a while that on my phone that I was getting charged for every text that I got. And I started receiving this text that I had no clue who the person was. But I didn't want to write them and tell them because I was afraid they'd stop. Because whoever it was was leading the most interesting life you could imagine. And they were letting me live vicariously through it. And it took three months before I finally got up the nerve to ask who they were. Messages from the Ether. Your first text... Put you in the Decameron, tracking Bokasha through love's sickness, deep moist erotica. You leave no name, your number unrecognizable. Weeks later, I'm in city lights, coaxing Jane Shore to raise the trapeze artists once more from concrete and straw. I read that you are hours away from winging above my head through fog and spring on your way to Hong Kong. That night, I dreamed dragon smoke, scripting my name against a flame-red sky. A month later, man on wire traps you between two towers, glued to a wire swaying over a man-made chasm. I'm in bed, nursing a knee swollen, and, swollen around an ACL stretched to disbelief. You say Petite left you dizzy, Mind spiraling, unhinged above the rubble that will be decades later, dragging glass and ruin beneath autumn's indifference. Three months pass before I ask who you are. 
careful of the fragility of names and faces made concrete, easily shattered. It's Eva, you reply, from Boston, from the Fog Museum, from theater and poetry. Eva, my friend, as I write this poem, Boston should be past a flowering season, heat hovering over the chawls, dragonflies rustling. I imagine you sitting lotus-style on the north bank, hair tied, a knot that trails down your back. You lean over your phone, concentrating on every letter and symbol before winging them across ether. There is an exhibition on the web of postcards. There's dozens of postcards, and these were only the ones that they were able to collect from posterity. The exhibit is entitled Without Sanctuary. Mississippi Barbecue. Sliced away and soaking in jars, the sweet parts, tongue, eyes, genitals, saved for luck and souvenirs. The Negro ablaze, back arched as if in ecstasy. Having lingered once too long on a white woman's face, he is reclined, bullet-ridden, languid on the blistering pyre. Centered on the tableau, still life posed for the cameraman's steady eye. Twice, the magnesium flash sparks through the dapper crowd. Two score fedora and bonnet crowned heads lean into sight line. Later, there's potato salad and sweet cold tea. Soaked in blood, soaked in piss, the hunting sack crumpled into itself at fire's edge, smolders. Rumor is the postcard will be a dollar. The body, now chalking toward pristine, is left to the children, lipless, its grin crackling and tender. The sheriff's youngest boy rattles a cane round the ribcage till it caves like a miner's tomb. A fiery halo blossoms on the chin. Bits of charred flesh flake away, float lazily on the night breeze. Flame-struck and spellbound, the pastor sucks absently a rib bone, prays the children understand the need for cleansing. All right. I'm going to read two more poems. One is, I believe, in cries very little especially to people who have children. I think you'll, <laughs> you will understand the feeling. One summer. One summer I could only hold my children in poems. I thought us cursed, a witch tormenting our names. Scoliosis rioted along my youngest daughter's spine. I slept for a week beneath gray walls and ceilings, seven sunsets spiraling over the horizon while, in another room, 
My oldest daughter, sun sliced from her, shuffled gingerly as if over coals and broken glass from bed to bathroom, holding her belly, both our hearts in such small hands. Shrunken into a corner, my son, he and his guitar strapped strapped to a long sung tonality, trying to ratchet down a single note for loneliness. In my worst dreams, we are Icarus, winging across a rusted desert. Next scene, they are gut shot. One, two, three, black wings flailing. Against a broken air, composite scream vibrating through my bones. I turn, not looking, and leap, hoping to be Father, God, Savior, but... I carry two cursed hands that can't possibly hold the explosions blossoming in my chest. In my best dreams, our fingernails actually touch before we all fall. Rebirth is a poem that I, I finally had to be convinced to read. I do, I do actually like the poem, which is, which is if you're a poet, you realize that's very rare for you to actually write something that you actually like. But uh, it's, uh, it's the length of it that concerned me because it reads in about three minutes, but I read it in New York recently and it was well received, so now you get to be the second captive audience. Rebirth. Waiting until dusk, the black hole climbed down from the heavens and through the stonecutter's window. On its vast back, it toted a knapsack full of the everything it had yet to digest. A porcelain doll's blank stare, twin pulsars from a distant galaxy, an omelet-encrusted spatula, parapets from a high castle wall. Having squeezed into the shape of the once-tall stonecutter, the black hole sat at the kitchen table in precisely the cutter's way, hunched over, knees together, staring across to where his wife would be if she was yet home from tending the master's garden. On the table lay a marble spinning top carved from a block smuggled from the master's keep. It was the top and the promise of spinning that drew the black hole from its perch in heaven. The stonecutter spent two years cutting marble slabs for his master's ballroom. Shoulders circled slowly, polishing stones until his hands were gnawed knots that he no longer recognized, lumps of sinew and bone hanging from his arms. The master's daughter would turn 18 soon, a woman's age. Her desire was to spin on marble slick as wet glass, spin like sunsets rolling down the royal garden tree line. It was, too, the promise of this spinning that drew the black hole from its cubbyhole in the ceiling of the universe, climbing down galaxy after galaxy to the stonecutter's window. All went along, The stonecutter cut marble and polished, set slabs in place and polished, grouted cracks and polished. 
Occasionally, he covered its small, dull chunks to his kitchen where, by candlelight, he set his hands to releasing dolls and houses, horses and chariots from the marble prisons, and yes, just once, a perfectly shaped top. The top, in its almost realized potential to spend, reminded the black hole of a galaxy it devoured five million years before. It was the shining marble top, the ceremony of carving, the memory of the galaxy, of the galaxy, the soon-to-spend daughter that drew the black hole to the stonecutter's window. It was, too, the anniversary of spinning, of womanhood, and shine, the small chunk of stone the cutter stole away in his wagon. The marble, now whittled, whittled down to a sleek, shining top, toppled on its side, wobbled on the cutter's breadboard as the black hole shook the table with its many solar system-shaped hands. For the sake of ceremony, for spinning, for the austere birthplaces of marble, the black hole opened its mouth and released the devoured galaxy, let it spin down and light upon the top, writing it again, setting it spinning on the stonecutter's breadboard. A planet in the galaxy continued as if nothing had happened. The people making bread, making love, spinning, cutting marble. They now live on the marble top, helping it spin to cut a new language into the wooden breadboard. In their tongue, the word spin also means once we dreamed. Thank you very much. Thank you, UC Berkeley, Robert Haas, Giovanni Singleton, and all of you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.